You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Uh, we're going to be in John 7 and John 8 today, uh, the end of John 7 and the start of John 8. Uh, that's where we're going to be. And uh, I really would encourage you to try to have your eyes on a Bible, uh, whether it's on a screen or on paper, whatever, because we're going to cover a lot today uh, and not a lot of time. And there, there's a lot to this, that, and it's a story. It's helpful to actually see it, to, to see the words uh, that were recorded for us. Um, but while you're finding that, I was uh, thinking about golf this week, of all things. Are there any golfers in here, whether young or old or men or women? Not very many. A couple. Man. A few. Wow. Out of a whole crowd. Okay. So golf has fallen on hard times, apparently. Uh, but there is a, a uh, important golf tournament today. Uh, well, it's gone on the last few days. It ends today called the Masters. Uh, it's down in Augusta, Georgia. It's probably the most well-known golf tournament, at least in the U.S. Uh, it's a beautiful course, and I'd love to go sometime. People call it a tradition unlike any other. That's what they call it. Uh, but uh, I mentioned golf because it has to do uh, with the issue, in my mind, of pride, which we're going to see uh, in this text today. And golf, for me, in my life, I don't play much at all. My golf club is set in our basement for several years now, accumulating dust, but I used to play a good bit, and it was one of the most humbling things I could possibly do. Uh, if you've ever played golf, you might uh, sympathize with that. Uh, it's sort of like an x-ray machine of sorts that helps, x-rays help you see bones and organs and whatnot, but golf, I think, gives you an x-ray into your heart and what, what's really in there. Uh, Bryant Gumbel, a sportscaster, said that your emotions are exposed when you play golf. Humility, pride, anger, it all comes out with each swing. You lay it all on the line. And I, I can sympathize with that. When I used to play golf, I'm a pretty mild-mannered person, but uh, sometimes when I would play golf, if I was doing well, I, I would feel fine. But when I would have a shot that was just terrible that went into the woods or the water or whatever, I would s slam the golf club down onto the ground or like mumble stuff under my breath and get so mad <laughs> at myself. And hopefully I'd be better now if I played again. Um, but it, it would expose some pride in me that I could not believe that I'm not better than this. Like, why can't I do this? Why can't I get this right? And if you think golf is easy, I'll say as an aside, it is not easy at all. It, it's taking a little ball, hitting it in a little hole, but it's like 500 yards away. Uh, that, and you get a little stick with metal attached to the end of it to try to get it down there. And it is a humbling, humbling sport. It, it will melt away pride that you have very quickly. Uh, and today's passage, we're going to see pride on display in a group of people. And it's like this situation is exposing it. It's, it's forcing it to the surface for us to see, for everybody to see this pride that's just oozing out of them. And we're going to see as we read this, it put on ugly display. Uh, and what the Lord, I trust, will teach us is not just to read this and think, oh, that's terrible. Like, how could those people be like that or treat Jesus like that or treat this woman like that? But that we would see pride in our own hearts. That we would see that it's, it's not far removed from any of us. And it, it might not come out constantly, but it's often there. And it, it lurks beneath the surface. And we need to have it exposed in us and see what the Lord, how the Lord may address us uh, when we see pride in our own hearts and see it come out 
in our own life. And so we're going to cover from John chapter 7, verse 40. We're going to go all the way to John 8, verse 11. So that's a lot that we're going to read through and go through. Um, But I trust that the Lord will teach us um, much through it. So if you haven't been here, as we've been going through the book of John, uh, just to catch you up to speed really fast, John is a record of Jesus's life, particularly his adult years, that his, one of his friends, one of his disciples, John, wrote for us. He recorded a lot of things that Jesus did and taught, and we've been reading a lot of those, the miracles that he performed, the things that he taught, and most recently, and where we're going to be in this scene as well, is in the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. It's about six months before Jesus would go to the cross and be raised from the dead. And it's during this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, where there's been a bunch of people in Jerusalem, and Jesus is sort of stirring up the pot. He's coming to town, he's teaching, he's saying some outrageous things they think about himself, that if anyone's thirsty, Pastor Larry preached about a couple of Sundays ago, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me, Jesus said, and drink, and talk about how life would come to them, and water would flow through them to others. And the leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are starting to get increasingly angry at Jesus. We saw back even in chapter 5 that they wanted to kill him, that they started angling to put him to death. And then even recently in, here in John 7, if you look back at verse 32, it says that this group of leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, that they sent officers to arrest Jesus. So in, in the temple around it, they were sending these guys to go arrest Jesus. And we're going to see that they come back empty-handed in this story we're about to read. And so uh, follow along with me. We'll read the first half of this, uh, go through it a little bit, and then we'll read the second half. But we'll read verse 40 to 52 of John chapter 7 first. So it's that John records this. It says that when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then here's these officers that have been sent. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Pause there. There's a lot going on uh, in this story. Uh, the fir- in the first few verses, we're not going to spend much time on those because it's, it's repeating some of what we've already seen earlier 
even in this chapter, where there's this division amongst people. As they hear Jesus teach, as they hear him say these things about himself, there's this division. Some people start believing. They think, man, I think he is the Christ. I think he's the one God sent. And other people kind of brush him aside. Uh, Here it seems like based on where he's born, because they know from the Old Testament that the, the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And they think Jesus, they don't realize that Jesus actually was born there. And so they think, well, he wasn't born there. He's from up in the north, from Galilee, when Bethlehem's down even south of here. Like, there's no way he's the Christ. So there's this division amongst the people that we've seen that over and over again in the Gospel of John. Some respond in faith. Some respond by rejecting Jesus and brushing him aside. But what I want us to really focus on in this section is verses 45 and following because you see the pride of these groups called the chief priests and the Pharisees put on display. You see their pride unquestionably put out there. And even though Jesus wasn't there in this room when this happened, uh, John wasn't there, somehow he knows what happened. Maybe he talked to Nicodemus later and he records for us what happened when these officers who'd been sent to arrest Jesus come back without Jesus. And what, what unfolds there is puts their pride fully on display these jewish leaders so these officers that have been sent they come back empty-handed into these quarters of these leaders that whatever room it was place it was we don't know but they come to them and they don't have jesus and you see instantly that that the authorities there the priests and pharisees are angry like they why did you come back without him why why didn't you bring him with you that's what we sent you to do and and you couldn't even do your job and what would have been tempting for these guys to say, I think, would have been to find some excuse like, man, there was such a crowd there. Like, if we would have tried to arrest him, like, it would have been crazy. People would have not had it. Like, it would have gone bad. And so we just kind of held off on it. They could have said that. Like, they could have gone that route. And maybe these guys would have understood it and been like, okay, practically speaking, I get why you didn't do it. But they're honest, and they say the reason they didn't bring him is because of how he's speaking. It's because of what he's saying, the things he's saying about himself, the things he's conveying about God and about himself being a source of life. They say, nobody ever spoke like this man. And these guys cannot stand that. Because these people, the chief priests and the Pharisees, were the most respected people in Jewish society. They were the ones who were the teachers. They were the ones who were respected. They were the ones who people would follow and have this utmost respect for and these guys that are they're supposed to be doing a job for them they're sending their their underlings to go do their task they think they come back and they're defying them and on top of that they're saying essentially you should go listen to jesus nobody ever spoke like this guy like go listen to him and they come unglued they come unhinged and you see their pride start to ooze out in verses uh, 47 and following and what's important to know here in the background is that these in this society there was sort of an us them mentality there were this upper level of people in their minds of of the chief priests and of the pharisees and the scribes who are these respected religious people and then there was everybody else there was the crowd they called them there was the 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 lesser people who didn't know as much who didn't obey as well the law of God in their mind. And so these guys were held up on a pedestal and that's being threatened. It's like the pedestal is about to get knocked over. And you see these guys, their their pride just ooze out. And you see it, I think, in two ways. You see, one, that they're proud of their knowledge. 
They, they think that they are the ones that understand the Bible. They think there is nobody else in that crowd. There's nobody, these officers that they sent out. There, in their mind, there is nobody else who understands the Bible as well as they do. And so that's why they say things like, have you been deceived? And they say, have any of the authorities, this is talking about themselves, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Like, we're the smart ones. Like, we're the ones that know the truth. We're the ones that know who's the Messiah, who the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to be like. This crowd, they, they call them the crowd. They say the crowd does not know the law. That's what they say. Did you see that in verse 49? This crowd doesn't know the law, and they're accursed. And they are so full of themselves, thinking that they are the ones that know the word of God, that they're the ones who understand it, that know the nuances of it. They're the teachers of the law, for goodness sake. And they cannot stand that the crowd is going against them, that some are starting to believe this man from Galilee, this man from up north, from some small town, middle of nowhere. They cannot stand that there's someone who's challenging their knowledge, challenging their place as the ones who know the most about the Bible. But the ironic thing is that they are overestimating their knowledge. They're full of themselves, thinking they're the ones that know so much. But their answers here and their, their question even about to, to Nicodemus at the end of what we read, they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That is flat wrong. Like If you read through the Old Testament, there were prophets that came from Galilee. And they're, they're, if you read Isaiah chapter 9, which would have been part of their writings that they were the teachers of, Isaiah chapter 9 talks about how there's going to be this light that shines in Galilee into the darkness. And, and they had heard these things, and they should have known these things, but, and they're so full of themselves thinking they know so much, and their answers show their ignorance. They, they, they have no legs to stand on saying that they are the ones who know so much. And so they're proud of their knowledge, but I think even more you see that they are proud of their holiness. They're proud of what they think of as their obedience to the law that they think is on a level that other people can't hang with. They think not only do we know the law, not only do we know it better than other people, but we do it better than other people. This is what Pharisees would have been known for. They were the ones who we keep every part of the law. We do all of it, no exceptions. We are the ones who follow it. And they, when, when you can see their pride here in this part of the story, because Nicodemus, did you see this, verse 50, he's one of them. He's a, we saw him back in chapter 3. He's a teacher of it, the teacher of Israel. He's one of these, these men who is, are these rulers and teachers uh, in Jewish culture. And he tries to challenge them on this, doesn't he? Because he, he senses in this crowd, or in this group of men, that they're saying, we're the ones who know the law. Like, you guards who came back, like, are you really going to go in with the crowd, these ignorant other people? Are you really going to go with them? And Nicodemus, I can feel himself kind of distancing, saying, hold on. You guys say you know so much about the law. He questions if they're actually doing what the law says. In verse 51, he says, Doesn't our law, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And so he's trying to challenge him. Like, you guys aren't even, the subtext says, you guys aren't even obeying the law. Like, you think you know it, and you think you're these, like, noble doers of the law who are super holy. You're not even doing what our law says to do. You're wanting to go arrest Jesus and throw him in jail and throw him in a tomb. 
And our law says you need to give him a fair hearing. You need to, we need to invite him in and hear what he has to say. And they will not even entertain this question. They don't even dignify it with an answer. They just come right back at Nicodemus and say, are you from Galilee too? And that they will not even entertain the fact that they could be disobeying the law. Because they hold so highly, like, we're the doers of it. We're the holy people. Like, we keep the law. And Nicodemus, one of them, is trying to challenge it, and they can't even see it. They're blind to it, that they are actually overestimating their holiness, not just their knowledge. My first word of application from this section would be this to us, is to let God tear down your pride. Let God tear down your pride. We as people who operate in religious spheres and Christian spheres in particular, we can be so blinded to our pride. It is hard for us to see sometimes. We, we can have it in our hearts and not even realize that it's there. J.C. Ryle, a pastor, uh, once wrote that pride's a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. And there's a sense in sometimes in our lives where we're trying to do what we think the Bible says to do, and we're trying to grow in knowledge, and we're trying to grow in obedience, but we're doing it to impress people. We're doing it to show that we're better than that, that, that we can do this, that, that we're just trying to muster up willpower and trying to, to get uh, ahead of where we used to be or ahead of other people or to try to not be like those people. And often pride is what is driving those acts. It's what's driving our study. It's what's driving our, what we think of as obedience to God's word. We need to be careful that we don't have pride, that we don't have a a proudness when it comes to our knowledge. This is a, a temptation for us that knowledge can puff us up. The more we know, we go to a Christian college, we go to a seminary, we go to classes, we go listen to sermons, we listen to podcasts, we read books, we get all this knowledge and it can just subtly puff us up. We think, man, how much do I know so much about the Bible? I'm, I'm learning so much about God's word. I know I've memorized so many verses and it can just puff us up and Satan would love that to just pump you with Bible knowledge and build up pride in you rather than humility. And it happens all the time. It's happened in my life. It happens in many of our lives. And we ought to be people who are growing in knowledge. We ought to be people who are growing in obedience. It's not just leaders who have an ability to understand God's word. All of us can. But we ought to not learn and seek to obey in a way that puffs us up. We need to come to Scripture not just to learn and pump facts into our head, but to let it challenge us. To let it be that x-ray to expose sin in my heart. That We need to read the Bible that way. Not just, I need to know more and know more and know more. But I need to let the word of God read me. And let it change me. And let it show me sin in my life. So I'm drawn to Jesus more and more. And we need to be careful to not be overly proud in our holiness. Like these men were. We can often just, we can grow in what we think is godliness externally and doing and doing and doing and stop doing this and start doing this and if we're doing it just to to show how good we are or just because it's the right thing to do or because that is not honoring christ but if we're if we're seeking to to live lives of holiness if we're seeking to to confess our sin if we're seeking to grow in obedience out of a love for christ that is what god wants in our 
He wants us to stop living so proudly, stop living so full of ourselves, full of ourselves when it comes to knowledge and holiness. He wants to tear that down. Nicodemus is an example for us of someone who would have been tempted to pride, but he's slowly starting to let God tear down this pride that was in his heart and say, maybe I need to ask questions. Maybe I need to learn from Jesus. Maybe I need to be exposed for the ways that I disobey the law. Instead of just assuming I know the right answers and I do the right things, I need to have my pride torn down. And so the first thing I would, I would see in this text is to let God tear down your pride. We're going to move to the start of chapter 8 here in a second. Um, but I want to say a couple of things about this section of text that we're about to read because it may be confusing to some of you. If you're looking at a Bible, you're, these verses may look different to you. They might have like a double bracket at the front and end of it. Or some of yours might put it down as a footnote even, like down at the bottom of a page uh, from John 7:53 to John 8, 11. Uh, the reason, I want to just explain real briefly why that is and, and what is going on here. Uh, what, as best as we can tell, what follows from verse 53 down to verse 11 of chapter 8 was not part of what John originally wrote. Uh, when he was writing down his record of Jesus' life, this section was probably not in the original thing that he wrote. And there, there's ways that, that we can know that. I was trying to think of a simple way to explain this. The closest I can come, and maybe this is helpful, maybe it's not, is if you guys have ever played the game Telephone. Have you played this game, Telephone, before? Like when you're a kid, uh, you, you start with a message and you tell it to the next person, and they, as best as they can, as long as they're actually trying to play the game the right way, uh, try to say the, the exact thing you said to the next person. And then they try to say the exact thing to the next person. Uh, the way that we have gotten the Bible into our hands is sort of like a far, infinitely more important game of telephone. That there was an original thing that John wrote, right? He wrote uh, this story of Jesus, and then that got copied. That there was people that would sit down and copy it, and then that copy would go to others, and they would copy it. And those copies would go to others, and they would copy it. And almost all of those copies are the exact same as we have found them from the ancient world. But there at times would be these little letters that got misspelled or things like that. But once in a while, there would be somebody who was copying something. who We don't know the reason, but they would put a little story in or they would add a sentence or something like that to try to explain a little bit or set some context. Uh, and they would interject this part into their copy. But then what happens is as that copy gets copied, it gets included, doesn't it? And it slowly can start to feel like it's part of the original. But as we've discovered, as archaeology and whatnot has found earlier and earlier copies closer back to the original one that John wrote, this section actually was not in it, even though it was in some of the later ones. Does that make sense? Uh, that, that was in some of the later copies. That does not, so we're still going to read it, and I think we can learn from it, even though John probably didn't write it. Because I would guess something very similar to this actually did happen. That would be my guess. I, there was many things. You read the end of John itself, for example. You read the very last verse of John, chapter 21. And it says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's at the end of John. And so we know there's so many other things that Jesus did and that he taught and miracles he probably did. And there's so many things. 
that uh, did not make the cut, did not make it in by the Spirit's inspiration into the Bible. And so what probably happened is that this something like this actually did happen, and it got passed down by word of mouth, uh, and it became a story that was part of how people understood Jesus, even though it wasn't in the Bible. So something probably very similar to this did happen. It seems consistent with how Jesus taught, with how he operated, how he treated people. And so I still think, and we thought as a pastoral team, it's still good to read it and to try to understand it. So I'm going to read it briefly and then I'll make a few comments on it before, before we part. But in this, you're going to see the Lord not just tearing down the pride of someone, but building confidence, uh, uh, seeking to speak confidence into a person. So it says this. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And this is going to be a little bit different group of people. We'll see the scribes interjected here. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a beautiful story. I hope that this happened. I, I'm confident that it did. Uh, and you see in this story that the pride of these leaders coming out again. It, it comes out again. You see it in the way that they are treating this woman. For example, they are not treating her with respect, not treating her with dignity. They don't even bring the guy she was with. She's just a pawn in their game. Like they're not treating her with any sort of respect. And they bring her and disrespectfully put her in the presence of Jesus like a spectacle just to use for their end. And they're trying to challenge Jesus. And their goal is to catch Jesus, not to show compassion, not to show mercy, uh, or even to do what's fair or just. They're, they're using this lady as a pawn. And they bring her to Jesus with not an ounce of compassion in their hearts. And their assumption, that's the subtext of this, is that they're innocent. That they have the audacity to bring this lady and say how she broke the law. And that she needs to die, Jesus. That's what Moses told us in the Old Testament, is she needs to die. And this was, this, it's in the Old Testament. This would not have even been a common practice in their day to actually stone someone for this sin. But they still bring her in front of Jesus and say that she should be stoned. And they want to know what his opinion is. And Jesus bends down and it's almost like he's ignoring them. But they continue to ask him. And he's writing something in the dirt. And I don't know what it is. That would be fascinating to know what he was writing in the dirt. But he does speak. And he says, let him who's without sin among you 
be the first to throw a stone at her. And that is what makes them slowly walk away. Verse 9 says that when they heard it, they went away one by one, starting with the older and then going down to the younger. They heard Jesus confront their pride and said, you want to throw stones at her? Whatever ones of you are innocent, line up first. And it apparently cut to their heart. They, they couldn't, in good conscience, do it and say, yeah, I'm innocent. Like, I can come and be part of this to, to, to put her to death. And they walk away. Jesus is tearing down their pride. He's showing mercy to them, trying to expose their pride and tear it down. And they're convicted of it, I think. But note that they walk away then from Christ. They realize they're sinful. They realize they're proud, but they walk away from him. The one who could actually give them confidence. And they probably walk back away and just are seeking to be better, would be my guess, to seek to not do that again. Like, I need to become a better follower of the law. They're walking away from the one who can give life, from the one who can give them forgiveness, the one who can, like, give them the solution to their pride. They're walking away from him. Who is left there is this woman who probably has not an ounce of pride in her at this point. Like she has had it torn down forcefully. As a woman, she probably had no education in her day and would have been looked down upon as being part of that crowd that didn't really know the Bible. She would not have been proud of her knowledge. She definitely would not have been proud of her holiness. At this point, she's been caught in an act of adultery and brought out publicly in front of people and embarrassed and ashamed. There would have been no pride left in her. It would have been torn down already. But Jesus, when he tears down our pride, he wants to speak confidence back into us. He doesn't just want us to think how bad I am, how unworthy I am, how small I am, and just leave it at that. He wants to speak hope and confidence into people, into you. And that's what I would say, that we need to let God build up our confidence after he's torn down our pride. Because Jesus, when he comes to this woman, first he shows her, he says, where are they? Like these people who were condemning me. Is anyone condemning you? And she says, no one. And then he says in these words that he would speak to us as well if we put our trust in him. He says, neither do I condemn you. He's saying, I am for you. Like, I love it. I know your sin more than you. I, I know it more than you do. I know how awful it is more than you realize. But I do not condemn you. I am for you. I love you. And Jesus is speaking a word of approval to this woman, a word of confidence, a word of hope, a word uh, of, of approving love of her. Because he is the one who is without sin. He's the one, if anybody had a right to throw a stone at her, it would be him. If you were making a line of the holy people who would have had a right to stone her, he would have been at the front of the line. And the one who could throw stones at her just gives her hope and says, I love you, I don't condemn you, I'm for you. And he's not just brushing aside the law and brushing aside her sin. He says, from now on, sin no more. He knows how serious what she just did is because six months after this, he was going to die for it. And the one who kept stones from being thrown at her let something far worse come upon him. 
even though he was innocent, he said, let the death come to me on the cross. Let her sins be put on me. Let his sins be put on me, and I'll be judged for it. And that's how he can say, I don't condemn you. I know you sin. I want to tear down that pride that you have in your heart. I see it. I know it. I'm going to tear it down, but I'm going to speak a word of encouragement to you because I'm going to die for those sins. And I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I will forgive you if you come to me in faith. Nope, she calls him Lord, doesn't she, in verse 11. The other guys have just called him teacher. She calls him Lord. And to any of us, no matter how prideful we are, no matter how sinful we are, if we will come in repentance and humility and faith towards Jesus, he will say the same to us, neither do I condemn you. And that should give us confidence. God, as he tears down the pride in us, he wants to give us confidence that he is for us, that he is with us, and that he can give us power to change. That's why he says, from now on, go and sin no more. He wants to give us hope not to be arrogant in our obedience and our holiness say i'm going to help you obey i'm going to give you the power and ability to do what i call you to do there's a quote from uh, tim keller that i think i've quoted before but i will quote it again because i like it and it's a good reminder to me and I'll, i'll close with this in thinking of pride and of confidence he said the fact that jesus had to die for me humbled me out of my pride The fact that Jesus was glad to die for me assured me out of my fear. That is beautiful. Like the the fact that Jesus had to die for me humbled me out of my pride. The fact that Jesus was glad to die for me assured me out of my fear. He knows, and I would I would say to you that the work of Jesus, what he wants in your heart is to pull down that pride that he had or the sins that he had to die for. But he wants to speak that confidence into you that he's for you, that he's with you, that he will help you 